Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode, we look at what really drove U.S. GDP this past summer to new heights. Growth came in at 4.9% in the third quarter. Dick Ove will explain why the pace of growth was more modest than the numbers appear to show. Where is the U.S. economy now heading? Matt Van Alstein says it reminds him of summer 2008. Dick has the latest numbers out of Capital One on credit card delinquencies and losses on auto loans. China is showing fresh signs of slowing. We'll discuss the ballooning U.S. national debt and how to sharply reduce it. Matt will remind us of the biggest drivers in our escalating debt. Dick Beauvais will discuss his reasons for writing an open letter to Morgan Stanley explaining his downgrade of Morgan Stanley stock. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is planning to sell 1 million of his 11 million shares in JP Morgan, reportedly for tax planning and diversification purposes. Dick will explain why he believes Jamie Dimon's motives are different than Dimon's official explanation. And we'll have more on costly spending on the Green New Deal. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon co-founder and managing partner. Partner, and we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome for episode 93. The economy, the U.S. economy, sped up this past summer. U.S. economic growth surged at the fastest pace since 2021 as consumers spent at a blockbuster rate that analysts say will be difficult to sustain. People are saving less at the same time, um, but that was quite a a growth rate, and uh, we're waiting for the Fed to meet this week. They're expected to pause on interest rates U.S. consumer confidence uh, dropped for the third consecutive month. We heard that this morning. Meanwhile, in Europe, core inflation CPI is dropping in Europe and prices seem to be coming down here in the United States. Um, Dick, what's your thoughts on all of this? Well, basically, let's let's get the numbers straight first, all right? In other words, the uh, GDP uh, for the third quarter rose dramatically. Uh, it rose dramatically basically for two reasons. Number one, there was a huge amount of inventory building done by American corporations uh, after uh, a few quarters in which inventories had been reduced in size. Uh, the second thing that happened was, for whatever reason, uh, the trade balance got slightly more positive you know, to the United States. 
So if you take out those two events, both of which you might call one-time events, the uh, change in the inventories and the change in the trade balance, then the growth in the uh, economy was not good at all in the quarter. And if you take a look at the consumer in particular, in the uh, period from Q2 to Q3, the consumer actually increased spending at a lower rate than it did between Q1 and Q2. So that you know, the consumer did not provide the surge in spending, which grew the GDP in uh, in the third quarter. In fact, the consumer spending growth rate came down. It came down. It didn't go up. And what caused the growth rate of GDP to go up? was this tremendous amount of inventory building. So I'd say that uh, what we're seeing from the consumer is pretty much what we expect to see. We expect to see the consumer uh, run out of uh, uh, the ability to, to borrow a heck of a lot of money, to spend a lot of money, and that's now showing up in the GDP numbers. Growth uh, hit 4.9%, but um, you qualify the consumer spending that the consumers are spending less take really there's a slowdown there in consumption the growth rate in spending in other words the gdp is made up of many numbers it's not just made up of consumer spending and the, the fact of the matter is that the most important number in getting that 4.9 percent was a 400 billion dollar increase in, in inventory accumulation in other words corporations had not let their inventories remain consistent with the growth in their sales. So all of a sudden, they found that they were behind in terms of growing their inventories. So they bought a huge amount of inventories in the third quarter. That caused the GDP number to go up, you know, by this 4.9%, uh, you know, number. If you take that out and you say, well, what, what actually did the consumers do? What, what, what did the consumers do? in that quarter. And to, to find that out, you look at something called uh, real consumption personal expenditures. And real consumption personal expenditures in the first quarter, in the second quarter, went up nine-tenths of a percent. In the third quarter, went up two-tenths of a percent. So it's very, very clear from the numbers that the consumer did not increase spending activity in the third quarter. And the consumer was not the reason that the GDP number was as hard, high as it was. So essentially, the consumer is doing what we expect the consumer to do. The consumer is saying, you know, I'm running down my cash in my checking account. Uh, I, I'm running down my savings. I'm borrowing a huge amount of money. The cost of borrowing all of this money is excessive. You know, we, we've said before, you know, your credit card debt has gone from a 12%, you know, uh, rate to a 22% rate. You know, your auto uh, loan has gone from 4% to 8.5%. Your mortgage rate has gone from 3% to 8%. So, so the net effect is this is wearing on the consumer and the consumer is not spending at the rate expected. Now, when the fourth quarter GDP number comes out, it is totally unlikely that you're going to see another big increase in inventory building, yeah, uh, and you know you're going to uh, you're going to see you know a, a reduction in spending, and now to do the thing that John loves the best, my daughter runs uh, <laughs> twenty two <laughs> runs twenty two UPS stores. All right, UPS earnings in the, in the quarter that just ended were extremely disappointing. Uh, UPS was waiting to see 
what happened in Amazon's, uh, you know, Prime Day to see if they should fire a whole bunch of, of drivers or keep them on. Amazon Prime Day was a huge, you know, failure. It just did not produce what was happening. So after Amazon Prime Day, all of the, the UPS drivers started to a see a reduction in their income because they were getting less things to do. And if she's right, they fired a huge number of uh, UPS drivers. So, you know, that's a little smidgen of looking at the GDP from a place where you're seeing, you know, the movement of goods. And, and that's showing that there's been a major decrease in the movement of goods. So what you have is the GDP number, which is the one related to consumer, slowing down. What you have is UPS reporting earnings, which are well below expectation. And you've got this anecdotal piece of information concerning, you know, the fact that uh, UPS stores are not, are, are not, you know, getting anywhere near the business that they were. Another anecdote from these 22 UPS stores uh, that she runs is that uh, the managers get bonuses based upon how much they outperformed last year's performance, right? Not one of the managers in that system is going to get a bonus, you know, in this quarter because uh, none of the stores were able to match what they did uh, in 2022. So I, I, my take from these numbers are that the consumer is slowing down. In addition to which, uh, if you take a look at the uh, jobless numbers, which come out every Thursday morning, for the first time uh, last Thursday, we saw a meaningful increase in the amount of uh, people looking for unemployment insurance uh, because basically they had lost their jobs. So I think we are on the cusp of the change that we keep predicting will happen. And I think uh, I think it, it, this, the consumer is not going to be driving the economy in the next couple of quarters. You said previously, Matt, that you're anticipating a recession in the next quarter or early next year. And this may speak to all of that. Consumers are starting to weaken in terms of their uh, spending activity. Well, I, I don't know, predicting is the right word, but historically, when the yield curve inverts, the recession comes around 18 to 24 months later. And so that would be Q, Q4 of this year, Q1 of next year. You know, it, historically, that's kind of the range. The the one thing that I'm listening to Dick talk about these these numbers, and I just, I feel like it reminds me of, you know, the summer of 2008, when, when you know, going into like the 4th of July of 2008, the numbers look pretty good. Bernanke was out there, you know, talking about how, you know, thought the, the worst was behind us. And, you know, it recessions don't happen in a way where you're like, oh, by December of this year, we're going to have a recession. It's, you know, it's not a hurricane that, you know, it's not a 2020 hurricane where we have satellites that tell us where the hurricane's going, where it's likely going to be. You can measure the speed. This is like a 1900s hurricane, like the hurricane that hit Galveston, where, you know, some forecasters were able to say, well, the barometric you know, the barometric pressure is changing. We're not really sure what's happening, but then the next day, Category 5 hits the, hits the coast. And that's how recessions happen. Um, they come out of nowhere. They come they come rapidly. They come quick. It's a change of, you know, global temperament. Um, and you got to look around the world and wonder where, where the optimism is. You know, real disposable income on this last GDP report was down 1%. And the consumer is 70% of the economy. So, what does that tell you? I think Dick's absolutely right. This this number looks good because the headline number is large because of inventory building. But you got to ask yourself, why is everyone inventory building? 
my assumption or gut gut is that they're inventory building because of price increases. Buy now while it's still cheap to get your inventories because the prices are going up or at least they perceive the prices are going up. So this isn't confidence inventory building. This is inventory building to get ready for the storm that is is coming um or at least that's what it feels like look i i know there's a lot of optimists out there that say this time is different we have a soft landing one of the reasons we're going to have a soft landing they they constantly point to is that everyone and their dog during you know the last few years before the interest rate increases went and refied and so companies that normally would be sitting on you know back back when i started in finance they called them three 364 day loans because Banks could count them as um, tier one capital if they just refied every 364 days. Anything longer than one year was lower tiered capital. So companies had exposure to interest rates in a rapid fashion. But, you know, in the last, basically beginning in the financial crisis and since then, companies have been able to go out and get seven year loans at extremely favorable rates. And so that's the bull case for the why this time is different is that companies and consumers are all sitting on long-term low interest rate debt. And so these interest rate impacts haven't really hit. But when you see real disposable income declining at 1%, when you see wars in Europe and in, in the Middle East, when you see um, protests out the streets and, and you know it's just hard to put a picture and you have an actively inverted yield curve that's been flattening the last few months, and you look across the world and you know it seems like china is slowly trying to peg to the dollar again it seems like japan has let go of their yield curve control they announced this morning you know that 1% is no longer the ceiling for the 10 year um on the jgb so there's a lot of reasons to be pessimistic right now and it's you know i, I think our job is to try to be optimistic but the real world numbers don't look pretty as Dick mentioned in the past episode, auto delinquencies are up, credit card debt is soaring, and just as a host of other um, macro uh, problems out there, China's economy is showing fresh signs of slowing as well, Matt, and factory orders are down, uh, construction activity has stalled or slowed in China. And just picking up on China, what, what you also uh, re- referenced there, Vladimir Putin earlier this month met privately with Xi Jinping in Beijing, attending the Belt and Road Initiative Forum. Here's an interesting stat. China's exports to Russia have soared so far this year by 57%, and the Chinese currency accounts for almost half of all foreign exchange trading in Moscow, up from 0.4% in January 2022. And China is now also the largest importer of Russia fossil fuels, which gets to this whole idea that you spoke about uh, in the earliest episode of the bifurcation and the global economy. Everything is changing. It's an entirely different um, global geopolitical dynamics. It's changed everything. I think it has. Um, I think that, uh, in fact, uh, had an opportunity to speak with uh, James Gorman earlier this week. James Gorman is the CEO of uh, Morgan Stanley. And he was pointing out to me that uh, uh, Xi Jinping is so worried about the the Chinese economy at the moment that uh, he's now started to attend uh, uh, groups of uh, financial meetings in China, which he has never done before. In fact, he said that even the... uh, Previous premiers of China have never attended these meetings, so um, he 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 believes at least uh, that Xi Jinping understands that uh, China is running into a financial difficulty, 
and uh, China is now starting to try to do something to to reverse it. But in terms of uh, you know, you know you, the broader issue, um, I think that um, you you're right with with the bifurcation of the world economy on a political basis, we're getting a bifurcation on a, a financial basis, and therefore the amount of financial transactions that were done in the dollar, you know, the dollar is still the dominant you know world currency, and there, there's no indication at this moment that it won't continue to be. But, you know, if one takes a look at the percentage of transactions that occur in the dollar versus other currencies, the euro, the one, uh, it, it, the dollar is not maintaining its position and it is being pushed back, which has, I think, very negative implications for uh, the American economy and for American companies. A new poll by Harris conducted uh, for Bloomberg News said despite strong growth and a strong job market in the US, I guess you could nuance that. I mean, uh, if you look underneath the hood, um, more middle class Americans are worried about the state of the US economy than a year ago. And one of the reasons cited by these middle class respondents was the rapid rise in interest rates 57% of middle-class respondents said higher rates and higher borrowing costs were having a negative impact on their household finances. Consumers are feeling the pinch in the U.S., at least the middle-class. Well, you know, Capital One um, came out with its uh, earnings, you know, uh, last week. Everybody's coming out with earnings right now. It showed that uh, the uh, failures to pay the delinquencies on the uh, credit cards had gone from 2.2% to 4.4% in just one year. It just doubled. It just doubled. The the uh, losses on uh, auto loans, and this is just for Capital One, the losses on auto loans went from 105 basis points to 177 basis points. And the losses that they were taking on commercial loans were up 25 basis points. So, you know, this is one company, I mean, obviously one of the biggest companies in America, um, and certainly one of the biggest consumer lenders in America, but they're very clearly showing that there has been a, a, a significant increase in the amount of loan losses that they're absorbing because the consumers are having difficulty making payments. Um, there was an article in, um, I think it was The Economist, uh, or it could have been The Wall Street Journal, in which, um, you know, they went out and, and interviewed a whole bunch of people who had just had their cars repossessed. And basically, uh, they they were indicating that uh, they, they just couldn't make the payment. You know, bottom line, they couldn't make the payment on the car, so the car had to go. Uh, so, yeah, I, 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 I'm very much in Matt's camp. I'm very much uh, in the camp of, of, of being very deeply concerned about where the economy is going. Given all of that and where the economy seems to be going by your telling and Matt's telling, uh, most analysts are expecting the Fed to pause at its meeting this week. Uh, have they done their job? I mean, the markets seem to be taking care of interest rates, at least on the long end. Borrowing costs have risen. So where does the Fed move from here? What does it do? Well, in my view, you, you don't take a look at these meetings uh, as an indication of what the Fed's going to do. You take a look at what the Fed is doing by looking at their balance sheet. I think this Fed is trying very hard never to surprise anybody. 
all right? And therefore, they're trying to lay out the path of where they're going. And, you know, if 98% of the people out there think that, you know, the Fed will not increase rates, you know, in, in the meeting tomorrow, then I think it's fair to state they won't. Because if they do, it will be a huge surprise and it'll be a huge negative surprise and the markets will react violently on the downside if they do it. However, they are leaving the door open for a rate increase in December. And they, they again, are cautioning people that we may increase the rate in December. And the reason that they're leaving the door open is uh, these personal consumption expenditure inflation numbers were very disappointing uh, in the sense that everyone expected that this downtrend that had been established over the last few months would continue, but it didn't. Uh, if inflation was 3.7% uh, in the latest numbers that were produced. So the point is that uh, if the Fed really does believe that personal consumption expenditure inflation, a lot of words, uh, PCE inflation, is the key variable that they're going to follow in terms of seeing whether inflation is coming down. It's not coming down the way they want it, and it's still well above the 2% target that they're looking for, and therefore it is, uh, it is likely that uh, they're going to remain tight. But again, I started this off by saying, look at the Fed balance sheet. What are they doing with their balance sheet? Well, they're shrinking it. And they're shrinking it every week. They shrunk it by another $25 billion last week. Every week, they're taking that number down. They've taken it down now by over a trillion dollars. And, and you know, they're showing no, no indication whatsoever of easing up on shrinking their balance sheet. Uh, the money supply numbers come out a month delayed, but the money supply numbers which came out at the end of last week showed that the money supply is still shrinking at the rate of 3.5% on a year-over-year -year basis. So, and, and the deposit numbers, which the Federal Reserve puts out, and they put that out on a Saturday, they're showing, you know, that, that deposits are still shrinking in the banking system, despite the fact that they're paying huge, you know, yields to get, you know, big, you know, people who will invest 100,000 at a clip to, to get those people to come back, you know. So the Fed balance sheet is coming down Money supply is coming down. Deposits in the banking system are coming down. There is no indication of the numbers that are produced in the financial system that, that the Fed is easing or about to ease or is, is, is backing off in any way. Yeah, I, I think the Fed, I mean, I feel like I say this every week and I feel bad for repeating it, but the Fed's just going to keep doing this until they break something because the, the, the market's allowing it. But this is it's to me, I'm just shocked that they're continuing to do this. When you look at the, the fiscal side of things, you know, the US Treasury is going to be refinancing debt um, at this new four and five percent rates. And the percent of um, GDP that goes to fund the debt is going to cross over 10% soon of GDP just funding the debt. You have a fiscal deficit problem in the United States that's clearly, in my mind, not being helped by the Fed's actions. And yet I'm just astounded that they're continuing to do it. But I guess they're going to keep going until they the markets force reversal and they're going to you know, declare victory and say we went as far as we could. I, I think you gave us a number, Dick. Um, it's out there, obviously. Uh, debt servicing costs annually now at over $600 billion. Yes. In that range. Yeah, it's in that range. I, it, it, was the, it was the single biggest increase in the uh, federal budget last month. Uh, was the uh, interest payments on the debt. It wasn't uh, health and human services payments, and it wasn't uh, 
It wasn't payments for, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, you know, social security benefits. Defense and, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, was, it, was, it was interest. Matt turned me on to something last week, which I've been having a lot of fun with in the last few days. Uh, there is something called the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And you, if you can go on the internet, and you can see it, you know. And in, in, in that website, uh, there is something called the Debt Fixer Web. And what the Debt Fixer Web does is it provides you with a series of uh, departments of the government or, you know, j- just about five, four or five. And it, it then underneath those uh, areas, it basically tells you how much money would be cut off the federal deficit if you did A, B, C, or D. For example, if you eliminate the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, you actually would save $2.9 trillion, assuming you didn't create a recession by doing that. Uh, if, you, if you took the uh, corporate tax rate up to 28%, uh, you, you would get $1.2 trillion. And of course, that would eliminate the deficit. If you, you know, raise mm. the retirement age to seventy, to the age of to seventy, you would you would get another hundred ninety billion in savings. Uh, if, if you uh, made people who earn greater than two hundred fifty thousand dollars to continue to pay their their uh, social security tax, uh, it, it, it's something like uh, I think it's one point six trillion. But you know what you can do, you know, is a they let you go onto this site. You click the things you think should be done, and you come up with a net number. And then you send that net number. You know, you send your opinion with the net number to either the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, or I don't know some third. Probably it's their own uh, site. Uh, and it's, I mean, it is really fun to do because you know it, there are all sorts of ways. You know to affect the deficit in a positive fashion, and none of which it is likely that the U.S. Congress will do. <laughs> so the point is, you know, you can you can express your feeling as to what should be mm. done. Um, I mean, if, if, you, if you limit the increase in non-defense spending to 1% a year, you save $330 billion. If you get rid of farm su- subsidies, you save $250 billion. Uh, if, you, if you require the states to pay 25% of the food tax, uh, of, of the food stamp uh, cost, you save $250 billion. And, you know, if this thing goes on and on and on, because it allows you to take a close look at how the deficit is cre- is is been created, what can be done to eliminate the deficit, and it gives you the opportunity to express your view, your opinion, and put it in there. The, the, the tragedy of this piece is that nobody's going to do any of it. Mm. <laughs> the deficit, you know, the estimates of the deficit are still relatively high for both the third and fourth quarter of this year. And um, But there is a way to get out of it. <laughs> you know, we're just not going to take it. And it's called the Debt Fixer Web Device. Yeah, the Debt Fixer uh, Web Device. But you, you find it, I assume if you type that in, you get there. But it is found in a website called Responsible Federal Budget uh, Adjustments, or fe- Responsible Federal. Mm. Just go to the federal. By the way, when, when, I, when I play around with that, you know, the way is, you know, <laughs> there's so many, it's a fun, it's a fun thing. I, I wouldn't call it fun because it's actually 
extremely depressing. One of the ways that you can actually solve a lot of the problems for the feds is by transferring, you know, the federal payments like um, education grants or Medicaid grants or Obamacare grants or food stamp grants um, to the states, just by, you know, just by having Congress just push them off to the states. And I was like, that, you know, that's one of the easiest ways to do it, but that doesn't really solve the problem because if you live in the states, you're just going to have, you know, you're going to, your, your state taxes are going to grow. And so it might be, the, you know, an escape valve, but it's a real, real problem. This, you know, we're, we're, we're at debt to GDP that's rapidly growing. And I, I don't remember if it's this website or a different one, but one of the things that really shocked me was, you know, there's two, there's two budgets in Washington. There's the, there's the on paper budget and then there's off budget spending. And it's the off budget spending where a lot of this deficit creation is coming from. You know, the bill that, um, Joe Biden proposed to support, uh, I believe, Ukraine, 70 billion, I think 10 billion to Israel, something for the border wall. You know, it's 105 billion. And that's mm. just, they're just writing a check for if they, if this gets passed. It sounds like the Congress won't pass it, but, but the, just the gall to go and spend 105 billion of just straight up debt. You know, that, that's how Washington works and it's off balance sheet. And so when you, when you hear the, you know, the announcement that, you know, they've passed a budget and the debt next year is going to be 1.6 trillion. You can't believe that number because there's the off balance sheet stuff, which adds another trillion. I mean, we're yeah. talking about this year, we're going to add over $2 trillion of debt and we're not in a crisis. We're supposedly in a growing economy where unemployment is phenomenally low. This is the time historically where, where the deficit shrinks. And, you know, even in during the, the car, uh, Clinton years, um, the debt even itself shrank. Because because they they were able to keep everything within the budget, but right now we don't have anyone in Washington at all. It seems like focused on this, or even have it as a side issue. This seems to me like the biggest issue confronting America. Uh, you know, and I know we have a lot of issues overseas, but when once once you're once you trip over a, an economic crisis and you become you know hyperinflationary because you're printing money to pay your your interest and pay your debt it's really really tough on the economy to get back from that and it's really tough if you don't have serious people in washington and it sure seems to me that we don't um working towards it and i'm very pessimistic that said i know that i've been pessimistic for a long time and i've been wrong for a long time so i'd love to be wrong on this one as well I think also under Clinton, uh, he managed to get the deficit and budget uh, under some kind of control. A, a, a couple of weeks ago, and I hope I'm not misquoting him, but Larry Fink of BlackRock, who leads BlackRock, a huge, massive, influential asset manager, said the only way we're going to get our debt down is by growing our way out of it. We can't, we can't cut our way out of it. I was surprised by his statement. He doesn't well, believe in cutbacks. It's not that he doesn't believe in cutbacks. He doesn't think that they could occur. And by the way, you were right. Uh, you know, the, the net interest on the debt last year was six hundred and fifty-nine billion. That's what you know. That was what you said. Um, but but the point is, what he's saying is, you can't get the American people to elect people to the American Congress who are going to cut anything. <laughs> They're just not being elected, right? Yeah. So you got to look yeah. at the other side of the equation, I guess. Uh, because if you take a look at where does the government get its money, you know, forty-nine percent of it comes from you know the income tax payments made by individuals. Um, another nine percent or ten percent comes from income tax payments made by corporations, but another thirty-five percent comes from all of these uh, social securities, Medicare, 
payments of that nature. So if if you cut it down, uh, where the payments are coming from are really from the American people. Uh, if you take the forty nine percent and the thirty five percent, forget the corporate uh, tax payment. You know, you're up to eighty five percent of the revenue of the United States government coming from individual taxpayers. Um, you know, ac across the country. And I just my belief is they're going to get hit. They're going to get hit with a tax increase, whether it's a Republican or Democrat that's elected uh, next year, because what you said, Larry Fink said, you know, makes sense. They're just not going to cut anything. They're just not going to cut anything. But but I often wonder, Dick and Matt, uh, where is the common sense in American society? I mean, there's wasteful spending at the local municipal level education in a lot of jurisdictions is gobbling up a huge amount of taxes people's personal taxes in districts in new york and new jersey um maybe there's room for reform at that level but you could leave social security alone i i think you should leave social security alone but it could be reformed certainly but aren't there other ways so much waste highways to nowhere boondoggles subsidies that's, to various that's, that's, industries. I'm, I'm sorry, everything you just named is part of the discretionary part of the budget, which is not where the problem is. There's three main parts of the budget that have a problem. Um, the biggest one, which and the rapidly growing one, is the interest expense, which is because of the debt and the debt being refinanced at high interest rates and the debt being significantly higher than our GDP. So interest expense is the big one. Defense spending is the second big one, which you know, historically, our defense spending, I believe this year is going to be around 2.5% of GDP. And as recently as 1980s, we were spending more like 6% of GDP on that. Um, and then the big one, and this is, you know, the, the monster that's just growing rapidly, and it's not going to get any better until someone comes and fixes it is is transfer payments. And that's just your Medicare, Medicaid and Social Security, where you're taking payroll taxes, which are capped at, um, at least for the Social Security portion of it at, I think, 14. 4% of your income um, uh, up to about $140,000. And th those three items alone, defense, interest, and transfer payments, add up to more than 100% of tax revenues. When um, we had this, this uh, the budget shutdown or the, the government shutdown, you know, it was it was looming and Kevin McCarthy lost his job because he cut a deal to keep the government open. You know, the, the line in the sand was, we're not going to touch it. Any of the they can't touch interest payments because that's you know that's that's dictated by the market and dictated by the reality of what debt has been issued. They could touch defense, but apparently zero appetite from anyone in Washington except for maybe one congressman um, to to cut defense spending. And then Social Security is the third rail of politics. So the mm. three main everything you're mentioning. You could cut all of that to zero. You could cut 100% of the discretionary budget to zero, and this conversation would barely change because it would still be a massive problem. An interesting data point on Social Security. Um, um, a single person earning 47800 in 2015 dollars uh, and retired in 2015 would have paid 272000 into Social Security and receive about 294,000 in lifetime benefits. So if you suggest or propose to the American people we're going to mess around with social security, that's one of the first things they think about. It's it's the people's money, you're messing with our money. I mean, is there a way around it? Maybe you mentioned taxes, Dick, or 
what other reforms would work politically and in a sensible way? Well, again, there are there are sensible things that can be done, but I don't think any of them will be done. But I think the thing the thing that should be done more than anything else is raising the retirement age to seventy, because mm. uh, basically. Um, and, and we said this before, you know, back in 1938, nobody expected people to live uh, on average to be 72 to 73 years of age. They expected them to die, you know, around 65 age. And, and essentially, therefore, they voted, you know, you don't get Social Security until you're 65. People don't die. At the age of, thank God they don't. But uh, people don't die at the age of 65. And we continue to make these payments to them that they didn't put the money in for, that they didn't earn. And that's got to stop. I mean, we're wasting the productive capability of all of these people in the first place, because, you know, when they're 65, they know what they're doing. And they, they know how to handle their jobs. And they know how to get productivity out of what they're doing. But instead, they get to retire and do nothing. And instead of creating value for the economy, they take value out. But in France, as you know, earlier this year, they attempted to increase the uh, retirement age to, I think, 63, right? Mm. And they did 62. They raised it from And 60. then those riots on the street. Yeah. But they did succeed, Dick. I mean, you said attempted. Mm. They actually did change it. And, and the riots yeah. ended. Oh, you're right. Macron is a tough guy, and he 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 made it happen. But I mean, who, who's gonna who's gonna do it here? Who's gonna you know take steps and say uh, in for each in in, in 2026, 2028, 2030, 20, we're gonna increase the retirement age by one year until we get to the max of seventy, and we'll we'll leave it there. You know, I don't think anybody's gonna do that. This, the second thing that should be done is that. You, you can't cap social security payments. Um, you know, they, they've got to run, you know, you, you got to take this percentage as, as long as people are, are earning the money. Uh, that, that provides another major uh, increase in, in uh, income. But again, uh, you know, any thought of, of doing that will create tremendous, you know, kickback from from people who are who, who are getting off paying the social security payments by the middle of the year or by the you know the, the third quarter of the year um the the uh, whole issue of pushing the, the certain of these medicare payments back to the states uh you know matt's correct it puts a real burden on the states the only point is the states are not going to uh, not going to pay the same amount that the the federal government is paying in other words, the, my, my guess is the state legislatures are going to, uh, you know, reject making the payments at the level that we see now. So, I mean, there, there are things that can be done, but, you know, th this is a democracy and the American public have made it clear to, to their leaders, whether they're Republican or Democratic, don't touch spending. <laughs> no, just keep spending. Uh, and, and therefore... That's in, in essence, if we if we took the personality issues out of what's going on in the House of Representatives at the core, that's what they're fighting about. You know that we want to touch spending, uh, and and I think that that's the correct view, and I would hope that that view does become the dominant view. But I mean, uh, you can see the fights that we're having now uh, over 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 that issue. I, I would point out that, like in two thousand eight. Um... You know, as much as we might have different opinions around the world, or at least politically about TARP, the Congress passed TARP within weeks of the crisis happening. Happening, 
And in 2020, when COVID, you know, shut down the country and, 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 you know, the governors and the president, you know, did the whole two weeks to, to flatten the curve and everyone stayed home and, and consumer spending fell off a cliff and unemployment skyrocketed within, you know, days and minutes of that announcement. Like the entire economy went down to a halt. You had a very controversial President Trump leading the the executive branch. You had a very controversial Nancy Pelosi leading Congress, and yet they got the PPP bill done in rapid fashion. You know, a few weeks ago, I was leading, reading the, the history of when um, Ronald Reagan got the Social Security um, changes through in the early 1980s. And I didn't realize this until I read this. I'm, I'm, I assume my source was right, that the Social Security checks were set to basically drop 20% that next week if they hadn't uh, you know fixed it by law. And so I guess my my optimism is that you know and you you say this a lot Dick that America always does the right thing after it's exhausted every other option and you know the the social security trust fund is going to run dry right now it's predicted to run dry in 2032 but i presume that some point between now and then we will have a recession which will actually you know rapidly bring that date in you know it's going to be more like 2029 or 2028 when when all is said and done and at some point in time the congress will get serious and fix these things but right now i guess they're just coasting because times are good and life is life is fine we're talking about you know four percent gdp and even the atlanta now forecasts for the q4 is still predicting 2.5 percent growth in q4 so you know nothing nothing brings people together like a crisis and maybe that's what it'll take for this government to finally get serious about the problems in, in America. And, and part of it too must be the demographic crisis in America that we've spoken about, not enough workers coming in to shore up Social Security and other outlays. Yeah. I mean, the, the question really is, and the, going back to the, the website Dick was talking about, is you can fix the revenues. Um, it's hard to imagine how you fix the revenues without harming the economy. And, you know, this is how Art Laffer got famous on his famous Laffer curve when, you know, it's, there's a point where you can raise taxes so much that it actually reduces in the tax revenue because it harms the economy to the point that even at higher rates, um, you know, you're not going to collect as much money. I mean, you can go to the extreme and say, okay, if we're going to tax hundred percent of income, well, you can imagine how many people are going to get up in the morning and go to work. No one. And so 100% of nothing is nothing. And so, you know, going back to the other side, you could tax 0% of income. How many people would work a lot harder at 0%? I imagine a lot of people would work a lot harder at 0%, but then you wouldn't have government funds and you need you need to have that balance. The, the real question is, can you fix it on the revenue side? And, you know, my hunch is that you can around the edges, you know, maybe on capital gains, maybe um, indexing capital gains, but, you know, the real solution is going to come to reducing beneficiary benefits for social security. I mean, that's that's what they're going to have to end up doing is putting some sort of net worth ceiling or income ceiling so that certain people don't get social security anymore. They're going to have to, you know, somehow link the age of when you can first take it out to, you know, uh, expected life because back when it started, I believe the the you, your benefits kicked in around the time of of the average longevity of of, of humans at that point in time. Yeah. But since then, it's grown 20 years and the benefits haven't grown. And then, or sorry, the benefits haven't um, changed, even though you get to draw down for uh, multiple multiple decades, whereas before you predicted to draw down for you know a handful of years. And so th there's ways to go about fixing it, but it's got to be really done really smartly because you could actually destroy the economy. The yep. one that really 
stuck out at me is um on that on that computer game was when if you put a VAT tax, which is basically a sales tax, national sales tax on on producers, um, you know, that's the fastest way that I saw that you could just quietly just generate a ton of revenue, you know, putting on a 10% VAT tax on everything, but it's a regressive tax. And, you know, that's one of those taxes that Democrats don't really like that much because it actually hits the poor um, a lot more than, than income taxes do. So it's a tough problem, but there are solutions if we just had serious people. And I just don't think they're going to get serious until the crisis is on the doorstep. And just to be clear, you're not advocating the elimination of Social Security, the reform and shoring it up, making it stronger, right? Well, I'm not advocating anything. I'm talking about the various tools that you have. You have a revenue problem where they're going to run out of money. You have a spending problem where they're going to run out of money. And you can either cut the spending or you can increase the revenues or you can do a combination of both. And, you know, eliminating Social Security is, I mean... To use your own phrase, mass suicide. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, Social Security benefits have lost 40% of their buying power since 2000, according to a report by Senior Citizens League, despite the COLA increases recently. So uh, recipients are not uh, don't have the same purchasing power with, with Social Security today that they might have had a generation ago, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, but that's that's see, that's that's how you're going to have to solve the deficit problem too. I mean, what you're really doing is slowly making improvements to the balance sheet issue that we're talking about, and you know that's one reason I've kind of thought that they're going to do yield curve control eventually because the way to shrink the deficit versus GDP is to inflate the currency and inflate GDP so that the, the debt um, in real terms shrinks because of inflation. And and it's a it's a hidden tax on everybody, but it's it's a way to get out of it, and it's kind of the roadmap they used in the 1950s to get out of the inflation problems back then. Dick, you said you've been talking to uh, James Gorman at Morgan Stanley. Of course, there's a changes coming there. The uh, current co-president, Ted Pick will replace James Gorman in January. And in the meantime, you've published a really fascinating open letter to Morgan Stanley explaining your downgrade of Morgan Stanley stock in greater detail and um, just summarizing some of it, and it's quite detailed. Uh, the succession issue is important, but there were multiple issues you wrote about and I guess the geopolitical changes in the world from Ukraine and what's happening overseas to the um, global pandemic and the money supply are a big part of it. It seems that you feel that maybe Morgan Stanley has not positioned themselves properly. Yeah, well, in other words, I think that uh, unfortunately, um, Morgan Stanley is like every other company out there. They're looking at the trees all the time. You know what's what's the revenue coming in? What's happening? Uh, you know with the monthly budgets, etc. Uh, and I don't think that most of these companies look at the forest. What is going on uh, overall? And so I, I outlined. Uh, I think it was four areas uh, where th there's been a major change affecting uh, the business of financial companies, Morgan Stanley included. The first one uh, is, of course. The, the the political bifurcation of the global uh structure uh and and you started off by saying it john when you said that 
uh, X percentage of the transactions between Russia and China were in uh, Chinese currency, not in, you know, the dollar. You know, 20 years ago, that would never have happened. You know, it would have happened, you know, ever since the, just any time since uh, China joined the World Trade Organization. So the first point is that this splitting of the uh, world into two, if you will, blocks, uh, and we'll put on one side, you know, Europe and the United States, and on the other side, we'll put China, uh, you know, uh, Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea, and, uh, you know, a, a number of other countries that would surprise you. But anyway, those countries were all working with the dollar. They're not all working only with the dollar any longer. So the size of the overall market is not as great as it was. The second issue that I raised was that, you know, from 2019 to the middle of 2022, you know, we increased the money supply by seven and a half trillion dollars. Now, we, we always talk in big numbers and therefore the numbers don't mean anything, but seven and a half trillion dollars is a 50% increase in the money supply in three years. And, you know, that had a huge effect a huge impact on, you know, inflation, number one, of course, but also on a whole bunch of financial businesses, because the money just kept flowing in, it just kept flowing in. Now, since the middle of uh, 2022, to the present time, we have cut the um, money supply by one and a quarter trillion dollars, uh, 3.7%. So we've gone from creating a massive amount of money, which can be used by everybody, and which, um, if you take uh, Mr. Gorman's view, uh, you know, the rich get richer and the poor don't participate. Uh, the fact is that uh, the money was out there and it was it was growing the financial sector. And now the money is not out there as much as it was and it's being pulled back. All right. So that changes the nature of the financial business that his company and other banks are dealing with. Then, you know, you get to the third issue which essentially is the U.S. government, and they like to call it now banking March Madness, not basketball March Madness, but banking March Madness, because you had three banks go bankrupt in that month. And, and basically speaking, um, what, what the government recognized then was they have to protect themselves. The government cannot support the banking industry, you know, to the extent that was, you know, stated by the president you know, you cannot back $19 trillion in deposits with, you know, $200 billion, we'll say, in, in defense fund. So the government is now pulling the, the, the strings tighter around the banking industry, forcing the banks to give up certain businesses and forcing, if this rule goes through, and forcing them to change the, made, way, the way they do business. And that's also not being reflected by these companies. And then, of course, the fourth one relates strictly to the asset management business. You know, you've had, I'm going to say, thousands of, of money managers crop up in the last, you know, 10 years because of the uh, growth in money supply and the cost of money. And, you know, they, they keep cutting the prices. In other words, 10 years ago, if you put money with a hot money manager, you would pay him 2% of the money that you put there. And you would you would uh, take twenty percent of the profits, you know that 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 uh, individual made, you know, f for yourselves. 
no one's doing two and 20 deals anymore. People are fighting to get 1%. So my belief is that the structure of Morgan Stanley's business, and by the way, we do not have any, you know, relationship with them that, that would be, uh, you know, uh, making us have an opinion one way or the other. But, you know, the structure of Morgan Stanley's business is, number one, they know what's going on in the Far East. They've reduced their position in China dramatically and, and keeping now a group in Hong Kong, right? Um, Jamie Dimon's doing the same thing in, in, in China. So they know what's going on there. They're completely ignoring what's going on with, you know, the money supply shift. They're completely ignoring uh, that the government has got its own axe to grind here in these new rules that are being put out. And they're completely ignoring the fact that there is a very large amount of money managers out there and that, you know, it's not going to be the price any longer. It's going to be who's got the best performance. Uh, and it's going to be tough to, to be the best performer uh, in, in a market which I think is going to be as rocky as this one. So th that's what we were trying to outline, not just to Morgan Stanley, but to all financial companies. And again, I can't have a, a, a podcast without mentioning Jamie Dimon. Uh, he made the decision last week to sell a million shares of J.P. Morgan stock. To my knowledge, and I've been following this guy for, you know, well, the first time I met him was, you know, I, was in the 1980s, uh, you know, when he was working with Sandy Weil. I don't ever remember him selling any stock that he owned in a company that he was operating in. I don't ever remember him selling JP Morgan stock. I don't ever remember him selling Bank One stock. I don't remember him selling commercial credit stock. I don't remember him selling Citigroup stock. And now he's selling a million shares of JP Morgan stock. Now, obviously, the reason is always, you know, to estate plan issues. But the fact is, I don't believe it. I believe that this guy gets up and says, Every time he makes a presentation, the world is in a riskier place than I've ever seen it. You know, things are really, uh, you know, tough. You know, if you think about the financial system, the, the, the political system, and then all of a sudden he sells a million shares of his stock. You know, I, I put those two things together and they worry me. <laughs> okay. His official reason you don't buy that. He sees a lot of um, dark um, harbinger of fear, as it were. Um, interesting but this is also um it's one million of his 11 million shares so he plans to eventually sell the other the other uh, 10 million or whatever it is i i'm not inside his head i don't i can't tell you but if he would it's i do know that if he were to say i'm selling 11 million shares of jp morgan stock you know for estate planning purposes the price of jp morgan stock would be down 50 percent within a couple of minutes of him saying it uh, so, so the point is, he doesn't have the freedom to sell 11 million shares of stock because he'll destroy the value of the stock. But you know, if he makes a second announcement after the after he sells his first million that he's selling another million, I would say watch out. So we should, and he's the longest-serving CEO of a major U.S. bank and a prodigy of the incredible Sandy Weil, who built up City. Yeah, I don't think Sandy Weil was incredible, but. Uh, no? <laughs> no. 
Well, I think City, I think Sandy Wild destroyed City, but that's you know that he was incredible in that. <laughs> okay. Anyway, Jimmy Diamond is incredible. <laughs> you do mention him frequently, and he became a. Is this fair? He became a, a billionaire during his tenure at the yeah. bank because he grew the stock. Yeah, well, I mean, it just and that's the other thing. I mean, Morgan Stanley really was infuriating uh, with one of the things that they did. Uh, they made bonus payments. You know, there was a succession battle that, that you know, that, that I wrote about and said that they had to end, and they did end it. Um, but when they ended it, they paid $20 million to each of the three people who were running, you know, for the job of a CEO. The, the, the winner got $23 million. And then they paid $31 million to James Gorman, which I guess is his regular salary. That's ninety billion. That's ninety million dollars to four people. You know, JP. You know, the stock value. I, I think the value of uh, Morgan Stanley stock went down a few billion dollars uh, in twenty twenty three. So the, the shareholders walk away with a couple of tr billion dollars taken out of their pockets, and the people running the company run away with you know ninety million dollars gotten from the shareholders. I, I don't I don't think it's right. Eye watering numbers. Matt and Dick, you've been talking here and giving some interesting insights on the um, green energy and the Green New Deal. And Dick, you referenced a fascinating book by a French author uh, recently. I must note that um, New York State residents may be hit with higher bills because of higher energy rates expected with the move to renewable energy, uh, the use of wind farms. As you mentioned that, Dick, and, or not Dick. Well, Dick probably mentioned it, but yeah. Matt also mentioned it. Um, and global fossil fuel subsidies last year grew to a staggering record of $7 trillion, about 7%, 7 of global gross domestic output. So will there be, what's the risk return here? Is it a good investment in the long term? Well, it, it's it's very hard to say because if you believe what this guy Guillaume Petron has said, uh, renewable energy costs more than fossil fuels, and if not just in terms of uh, you know the actual outlay to put the renewable energy in place, but in terms of uh, its future, future uh, if you will, cause of deterioration in the economy. What am I trying to say here? That, that the pollution control is not going to be as great as if you suck with fossil fuels. So um, I'm not sure how well people have thought all this stuff out uh, as to whether you know making these expenditures are really going to save you know the green world or whether in fact they're just doing something because they're doing something in order to uh, you know deal with this problem. It doesn't seem to be the right solution. I'm going to paraphrase Rishi Sunak, you know, the, the prime minister of Great Britain, of uh, the United Kingdom, when he kind of rolled back because they have this vision of, you know, they had these goals for 2030 of um, greenifying their economy. And when he rolled them back, and I think he pushed them back to 2035, but it felt more like he was going to abandon them altogether, the, 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 the emissions goals, was that if they reach their goals, um, you know, hypothetically, that the over the next um seven years 
that they'd be displaced by about three months of increase of emissions in China alone. And then he's like, that's not to mention India or, or, or Africa. And so what you have right now is, you know, the West is kind of committing some sort of deciding in advance that we want to be less competitive because we're going to use mo- the most expensive forms of energy known to man. And at the same time, you know, the developing world is offsetting all the green savings that we're accumulating while becoming more competitive. And so it's not sustainable in the long run. And, you know, the, the faster people realize that and get there, um, the faster, you know, we're going to we're going to see a resurgence in, I think, nuclear because nuclear is green. It is abundant. It is cheap. Once you once you get through the upfront capex, um, and it's long term, long lasting, and sustainable. And yes, there's issues with the the spent fuel rods, but they're not the same issues as the emissions that are caused in creating um, fossil fuel emissions, and in you know even the the type of coking coal that you have to use to manufacture windmills or um, get the silicon for the solar panels. You know, it's it's all very environmentally intensive. And I think the 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 gig is up at some point that it's not going to work. And hopefully sooner the better, because I think our economy could use cheaper energy. Yeah, you, you said something at the beginning of that, those comments that made me think of a totally different subject. But that is, you know, all the people at uh, the auto workers have won their battle. And all of the consumers are out taking a look at how much Nissan's cost. They ain't going to buy American cars. <laughs> exactly. We can come back to that next week. I'm going to put in a program note here. Mark your calendars because we will have a live webinar on Wednesday, November 8th at 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time uh, with Geek Skeezers and Googleization um, hosted by Ira Wolf and Jason Cochran. You'll have Dick and Matt and myself. That's November the 8th at 2.30 p.m. It'll be available on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. If you need more information or want us to send you that link, email us at podcast at odioncap.com. That's podcast at odioncap.com. And that's it for this week. A great conversation, Dick and Matt. We'll be back next week for episode 94. And until then, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.